Please note that in this episode, there is racist language that some people may find offensive. And then after 9-11, all the racists came out again. And after Brexit, they came out in force. It was horrible. It was really horrible. It drives wives wicked. It makes such a golden brown car. It must be lots of fun to be mother. I've got something to apologize for. I wore my good suit because it was plain and neat. Afraid of not knowing what is proper. This yellow fluffo is such a short shortening. Hi, I'm Susan Osman, and this is Been There, Done That, a show about women who are shaping our world. They're not just striving, but thriving, and sometimes reviving, as well as pivoting and riveting. Experienced, smart women who are redefining what it means to be a woman in the workplace. You know I can't work without a good breakfast. All right, class, stop typing, please. This week, I talked to one of these women, Ranu Bula, former journalist of the feminist magazine Spare Rib. She's a teacher concentrating on building children's confidences, a biographer for people in their 70s to 80s, author of a very special cookbook, and she pioneered one of the first ever TV interactive auction rooms. She's worked in print, radio and television, and she joins me now. Hi, Ranu. Hi, Susan. I want to talk, first of all, about your very special cookbook, because um, there's a lovely story behind it. It's called Cooking for Robin. And can you tell us how it came about? So my husband left me um, and I had been a, a stay at home mum, taking care of my child and supporting his career. And when he left, um I mean, apart from your, you know, the world as you know it falling apart, I think my main concern was the financial one because I was, I was complete, I was a hundred percent reliant upon him. I'd stopped working in television, um, when I had my son so that I could focus on him. And, um, I'd gone back a little bit, but it just didn't, it just didn't fit in with taking care of a child as well. Um, but I had, supported my husband in his career. So I had, when he had shoots to to organize, I would set those up for him. I taught him how to direct. I would produce uh, various bits and pieces for him. Um, but it was all, it was all not paid. It was just, I was doing, you know, I was, I was doing the enabling of his career. I believe I once said, I once called it. So my panic when he left was that um, I didn't know what I would do financially. I couldn't go back to television because the type of hours that requires uh, don't really fit in with taking care of a young child as well. Um, and then the word got out amongst my friends that this had happened. And one of my dear friends, Sasha, rang up and just said, right, what can you do for us? Uh, you Could you do this? Could you do that? Could you do the other? And then it's it occurred to her that... Uh, her her daughter has um, a number of allergies, like a ridiculous number of allergies, uh, such a, a ridiculous number of allergies that the council actually give them money for a chef. And the chef that they'd had could no longer cook for her. Um, and she asked if I would think about doing that. And, and I thought long and hard because um, if you, if you get it wrong, 
then she ends up at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Um, and I didn't want it to affect our friendship. And, uh, and I was racked with self-doubt as, as, um, you know, as, as is so common with me, whenever anybody asks me to do something challenging, I'm always like, Oh, I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, I said yes. And she, uh, gave me the six recipes that were regularly made for Robin. She would have been around nine, eight or nine. So I had to look at those recipes and thought, okay, well, I can do this. And, um, and then I started to just pick those recipes apart and looked at the different uh, constituents and, and thought, well, you know, knowing what is on the list of things that she can eat and what's off the list, maybe I can make up some other things for her. And, um, and her parents said, actually, we were hoping that you'd say that. We were hoping that you would start thinking down those lines. So. Um, Gradually, I just introduced other things into her diet and different recipes. And I've come up with over 100 recipes for her now. And it's been, honestly, it's been just the most joyous experience. That very first cook, which I did for her, I will still, I will remember that for the rest of my life because it was, it was the first time I could, I, I sat there and I was thinking of doing something for someone else and I wasn't focusing on, oh my God, my life's falling apart. What am I going to do? Um, so it was just, it was wonderful. And I just, I just remember taking a deep breath and going, right, let's crack on with this. It all sounds absolutely delicious. But you know, what's, what's um, struck me uh, talking to you is that this came out of you losing your confidence because, you know, by what you, from what you were saying, you stood by your husband, you promoted your husband, then he, then he was gone and you didn't have the confidence to know what to do next, let alone the financial um, wherewithal. And this, this cook, this cookery book kind of, I, I hope I'm not being presumptuous, but it feels to me like it restored your confidence. It restored my confidence and it also made me stop feeling so sorry for myself because I was like, well, look at this child has to go through life um, being so limited with what she can eat and her parents um, do so much for her. And I thought, you know, all that's happened, whilst this is devastating for what had happened to me, it's a temporary thing and I will get over it. And to be honest, his leaving was probably a good thing for me because I had felt that I'd lost myself. I'd felt that I was not the person I was meant to be. And I actually remember during that last year of the marriage thinking, gosh, is this it? I really, I really thought I would do something other than, than raise an amazing child, which to be honest, I am super, super proud of. I, I have an incredible son and that is one of the greatest things I've ever done, but I always thought I would do something else as well. And, um, and it occurred to me that I had lost that person who had the ambitions, who felt that they, that they were put on this earth to do something other. You know what? What's very interesting, Ranu, that you know, given your background, you know, Spare Rib, which was a very high-profile feminist magazine, radio, TV, there be maybe people think, well, how could you not be confident? Yeah. So um, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think I think 
motherhood, um, when I, when I gave birth, nothing was easy. <laughs> nothing followed the plan. Nothing went along the lines that it was supposed to. And, um, and I think that period of, I was used to being out and about in the world, um, doing so much on my own. And then all of a sudden you have this tiny little person who you basically have to keep alive. And you're just in with in a house with four walls. It's just you and this child. And you go to these parent, these mother baby groups. And I just, I couldn't relate to anybody there. Um, I felt really alone and I felt really isolated. Um, it, it took me a, a while to find my people, but it certainly wasn't there, you know, for the first few months. And I think that experience just, um, it made me doubt who I was. Mm. Oh, so what message would you give to other women who might be listening to this, who feel abandoned for whatever reason and have lost their confidence? search out your friends, search out the people, don't, don't keep it to yourself, share it. At that time, um, you know, just after I'd given birth, I, I should have got some therapy because I think I had postnatal depression. And I remember bringing it up and saying something to my husband and, um, and he was like, no, 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 you'll be fine. Just, um, you know, be more physical, do more physical activities. Um, but I wasn't fine. Um, and I think that affected me for a long time. So if other, I, I would always say to people, just if you, if your gut is telling you um, that you need help, go and get it. It doesn't matter what other people around you say, just go and get it. Postnatal depression isn't really talked about much, is it? It's not really acknowledged as a quite a serious mental illness for so many women when they give birth. So many, and and it's almost you. I think if you have like you know the classic birth plan and everything goes according to how it should do, and you have all of the support that you need, even then it can happen to some women. Um, but for me, I it nothing <laughs> nothing went to plan, and um, and I and I really felt I needed more support and uh well i needed some support and it wasn't forthcoming and i felt so alone during that time and and even other women you know uh, you know when you give birth everyone expects you to be over the moon and so pleased you have your baby which of course the majority of women are but there are so many women like yourself who struggle oh yeah and and, and also they feel less than because they don't have these other feelings and looking at all these other people are so elated and cooing over their little bundle of joys. And that makes you feel even more isolated because you're not like all the other women. I know. Yeah. And, and like there were, there were a couple of weeks where he was waking up every hour and I was just, I was so exhausted. And, um, and I remember my mother-in-law coming down to visit from, um, Wiltshire with my sister-in-law and the two of them just said, right, go upstairs, go to bed. And I was like, I'm not sleepy. They said, just go upstairs, read a magazine, just go and rest. We're going to look after him. And, and I just, and I thought, gosh, if, if they had been on my doorstep, it would have been, um, it would have been so much easier. Why, why do you think, Renu, that more women don't talk about postnatal depression? Is it because they're, it, it seems an unnatural thing, but actually it's the most natural thing in the world because you're, you've got a biological response to what's just happened to you? 
Well, that's exactly it. Um, you know, we're, we're fed all of these images of people saying, oh, you've, you know, you've wanted this baby, now you have this baby, and you should be like X, Y, and Z. And, and, the, and the truth is, you have, it's, a, it's one of the biggest rush of hormones at that time. And, um, and, and so if things start to, if things don't go according to plan, then, you know, you're going to, things are going to spiral out of control. Turn to spare rib because when I was growing up, um, especially when I was at university, I used to love the spare rib magazine. And I don't think there's anything on the market at the moment. Can you tell uh, people who perhaps have never heard of spare rib what it was, what the philosophy was, and what you did for the magazine? So, spare rib was the world's first feminist magazine, and it was started off. Um, I believe it was in the late 60s, early 70s, um, by Rosie Boycott and that generation of feminists. And um, it was always at the forefront of the feminist movement. And it was always run by an editorial as well, an editorial collective. And by the time I joined, um, it was uh, it was run by women of colour. And the interesting thing for me was um so my whole my whole life whilst i was all have always been a feminist when i walked out of the door my main concern was racism um growing up in a time when this country was very, very racist in a very racist town. Do you think it's got any better, Ranu? Do you think we're less racist than when you were growing up? <sighs> yeah, that's interesting. In the 90s, I'd have said yes. I'd have said yes, things have got so much better. And whilst there are still racists out there, um, they know that it's a bad thing. And so they zip they zip it. Um and then after 9-11, all the racists came out again. And after Brexit, they came out in force. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know, it's interesting because I, I think they're, I think they're still, I think they're still there. Um, but they are, they are not, I don't want to say they're not as vocal as, you know, something, there was a point just after just after the Brexit vote, where it really felt like it was the 80s again. It was horrible. It was really horrible. What did you experience as a woman of colour? What, what, what did, how did the prejudice or the discrimination present itself? Oh, it was direct. You know, there, there was none of this subtle stuff, which you, you, you might have experienced. And, and this is London, which is the least racist town we have in this country. Um, there would be people going actually you'd be walking down the street and people would actually stare you straight in the face and say ha you'll have to go now and oh go, no that's <laughs> awful i know and and that's I, you know i'm not the only one that's happened to one of the things about facebook is that we all shared what our experiences were just straight after um straight after the vote and it was it was horrible. My son had never experienced racism in his life up until 
after that vote and we'd be on the tube and people would say things they'd be they'd be calling us packies and and I just I thought my I, I didn't think he'd ever have to hear this and now here he is he's hearing it how, how did you explain it to your son and how how were you able to to process it and and for it not to impact again on your confidence I had to well I explained it in political terms and and as a result you know he is he's become he's very interested in human rights and and making sure that um you know I think it's I think it perhaps has turned him into a, a is flowering into becoming some little activist himself because um he he could see that that was not right I I do know Renu listening to you I I'm so sorry I'm so sorry you experienced it and along with your son. I, I really, I feel so embarrassed and sad that people behave like that. It's just so awful. I'm really very sorry. Well, you don't have to apologise. It's nothing, it's not your fault. <laughs> no, I know, but it just, I, I, I can't stand that kind of unkindness. It just really, it makes me actually almost feel physically sick. And also being a woman of colour, I mean, we have enough to deal with as women. And then on top of the, on top of a, the, the colour of someone's skin as well as their gender, is this all a bit too much? Well, I mean, this this was the interesting thing about, like, coming back to spare rib again. So my whole life, when I walked out of the door, growing up in the Midlands, growing up in Birmingham, which, which at, you know, during the 80s, it was a very, it was a, it, my experience of it was that it was quite a racist town. Um, and... So the first thing that people I thought that people saw when they looked at me was somebody who was not white. So and the white feminist movement at the time was, um, you know, quite rightly, very concerned about pornography and um, sex discrimination. And whilst those were important to me, um, they were further down my list. The first thing on my list was the fact that I was being called a packy. And, um, and when I when I joined Spare Rib, um, the the editorial collective was made up of women of colour, and that was the first time um, that I spoke to other women who were saying, "Yeah, no, all of this other stuff is really important. The pornography and all of that stuff is really important. But when we go out, they call us names based on our colour, and so we have to. Our feminism is is slightly different to the white feminist movement and and then I thought okay this I understand this is actually my experience as well. So what happened to Spare Rib and why aren't there feminist magazines around today? Yeah so um, I think because we were um, we in the 90s Every month when we had to bring the magazine out, it was such a struggle. It was such a struggle trying to raise the money to publish. And we were, we weren't even being paid a wage. You know, we would just, we would just get by on just getting tiny, tiny little sums of money. Um, and we would have to, we would have to, it was a constant battle to raise the money to publish the magazine. And when we went into, into the um, editorial period, it was just, it was relentless. We would end up working crazy hours, sleeping a couple of hours on the floor, getting up, doing more work. It was, it was just, it was so hard. And, um, and in the end, we just couldn't keep trying to raise the money like that. 
So we had to we had to close the doors. It was a it was a real shame. But also, if you if you um, at that point as well, I think I think perhaps you know the feminist movement wasn't all it was all in little bits all over the place. People weren't united. Um, um, I think that I think perhaps the the white feminist movement didn't understand what we were trying to do. Um, and we actually we we put men on the cover of spare rib for the first time um because they because they were you know they had a good message they were they were saying things that we that we thought actually you're supporting us so we should publicize the fact that you are supporting us um and that didn't go down well at all <laughs> Now, you're, you're currently a biographer for people in their 70s to 80s, among other things that you do. But why did you choose that particular age range, 70 to 80? My um, my father passed away a few years ago and uh, it was unexpected. And I had I didn't really get to know him until he retired. Um, he'd worked really hard. He was a doctor and he worked, he did the work of two doctors so that we could have a nice life. Um, and he, I think in his mind, he thought, you know, if I, if I give them all the trappings of a nice life, then they'll accept us in this country. Um, and consequently I, you know, he would go to, he would drop me off at school in the mornings and I wouldn't see him till after nine o'clock at night when he was exhausted. And in those days as well, doctors, um, would go out on call in the middle of the night. Um, so he was, he was always tired and he was always grumpy. And so I, 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 I would generally stay away from him because he was always the moody person. And it wasn't until, uh, it wasn't until he retired well he's he retired and then he couldn't stand being retired so he went back to work part-time but it was during that period that I started to talk to him about his childhood and things that he'd done and and I had no idea about these things and I said dad is it all right if I if I um film you and record some of these stories because they're they're uh they're so interesting and he was like and he was so flattered he said no of course I'd love to I'd love to tell you about these things um but then something always happened and I never got round to it. And it was a huge regret. And I don't have any recordings of his voice. Um, I have, I have photos of him, um, for my son, but, um, I don't have, I don't have any of those memories that he, that he told me about. And I thought when I saw, when I, when I, um, when I saw the job advertised for telling these stories of older people, I just thought that is a wonderful thing to do. It's a wonderful gift to give the family and to, and your descendants. And my, um, my son was so close to my dad. They were best buddies. And, uh, and I really wish I could have done something like that for him. Yeah. It's very interesting. My, my mother's um, in her late eighties, and my son said to me quite recently, oh, you know, mum, you should record your mother and her memories. So we've got like an oral history 
of our family. I, I think it's, it's a, a lovely thing to do, actually. That's a beautiful thing to do. And and then you've got the voice as well, which is so important. Um, I've started to record my mum's voice now because that's something which you want to keeping the words is one thing that's a wonderful that 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 is wonderful but having the voice there so that it feels like the person is actually there with you you know it's very true when my father died my, my father died when I was in my early 20s oh wow that's that, so young yeah sorry. And, yeah and, and thank you and I and I my father had a lovely voice and I remember thinking I wish I had a recording of his voice I wish I could hear his voice mm. and yeah, that's so um, spot on what you said. When when someone you love passes, you can read their words, you can see photographs, but if you could, if you can hear their voice, it's very comforting. Yes, very much so. And it, and it's like they're still. I mean, I know, I know they say as long as you remember them, they're still with you. But actually, having their voice, then they actually, it feels like they are in the room with you. Well, you teach other people to find their voice, talking about voices, and, and you, you build children's confidence. You've got your own confidence back. What would you say to people listening to this who, for whatever reason, have lost their confidence? What, would you, what message would you say to them? It's so hard. There are so many different ways of building back your confidence. It, it's took, it took me... Um, you know, a couple of years of therapy and being with good people, um, having wonderful friends. I think to build to build back your confidence, you need to you need to spend time with the people who love you, who can hold a mirror up to you and say, "Look, I don't know what you're seeing, but you are actually this person." And and whatever it is you want to do, you just put your mind to it, and you can do it. Ranu Bula, thank you so much for talking to me. I can definitely say that you have been there, done that. Oh, thank you. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in this episode, there are support links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Been There, Done That with me, Susan Osman. Visit us on btdtshow.com for more interviews with dynamic women. And I'd love to hear from you as well. So please leave us a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. These are words of respect. How can you tell when you're really in love? And look how flaky it is. The girls weigh each portion of food they select. The Been There, Done That show is brought to you by Dan Hall at Pup Media Consultancy. We can still have a lot of fun, can't we? Your manners are showing. I'm a princess. Mabel loves cooking and does it well. Overweight makes an individual undesirable. Lovely stockings. And you think that's all that matters? <laughs>